0: Lock your doors, close the blinds, change your passwords. This is the Dry Cleaner Cast. Welcome to the Dry Cleaner Cast, a podcast that takes a new look at the war on terror, its legacy, and espionage in the 21st century. This podcast is written, edited, and presented by Chris Carr.
1: On today's episode, we're shifting our focus from terrorism to the world's second-order profession,
0: espionage.
1: This show is a little bit different as we're focusing on a developing story. Today, we're going to discuss the alleged Russian hack that subsequently has had an effect on the validity of the U.S. presidential elections. I'm joined by author Malcolm Nance, who wrote the book, The Plot to Hack America. As a side note, I caught Malcolm as he was in a car, a limo no less, on his way to being interviewed by NBC News. So you'll hear a little bit of car noise in the background of this recording. I hope you enjoyed this episode.
0: Opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the filmmakers and sponsors of the film, The Dry Cleaner.
1: Malcolm, welcome to The Dry Cleaner cast. Hello, good to be here. Can you just uh, just tell us a bit about yourself?
0: Yeah, well,
2: uh, right now I'm the executive director of an organization called the Terror Asymmetrics Project on Strategy, Tactics, and Radical Ideologies, also known as Tapestry. Uh, I'm uh, the terrorism analyst for NBC News and MSNBC. Uh, my background is a U.S. intelligence officer, uh, naval intelligence for 20 years, then uh, intelligence uh well, a, a myriad of things after that, but um, started out uh, in uh, the early 1980s. First tour of duty was in Beirut, 1983, and uh, was involved in virtually every Middle East war and special operation from 1983 to 9-11. And then post-9-11, I did operations as an intelligence contractor and, uh, and security contractor in Iraq, Afghanistan, uh, Libya, Syria, other places. And uh, author of seven books now, uh, including uh, several uh, intelligence community textbooks, Terrorist Recognition Handbook, uh, which is uh, going on its fourth edition, um, and End to Al-Qaeda, which was a counter-ideology strategy book on uh, Al-Qaeda and how to break its ideology. Um, The Terrorists of Iraq, which I actually wrote In Iraq Real Time, which was an intelligence community Originally, an intelligence community textbook about every terrorist group and their tactics that were being used in Iraq, and that's since been republished into a second edition um, that included the entire origins of ISIS. You know, a lot of people don't realize that the intelligence community was very aware of of what was called the Islamic State as far back as 2006, and all of that was included in there. Uh, My most recent book is Defeating ISIS. Uh, which is a 544-page sort of intelligence encyclopedia of ISIS. And it's also the last book Donald Trump claims he read.
1: <laughs> Did he really read it?
2: He told Time Magazine <laughs> that on 8 August that Defeating ISIS was the last book he read. Um,
1: was it the Russian know, edition, do you think?
2: Uh, I, I have a Russian edition, and I'm not quite sure whether that was it. It's a, I have a Cyrillic edition, you know, he claimed he read all 540 pages of it. And, which is interesting because 80 pages are references. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And then my most recent book, uh, well, actually, my most recent book, The Plot to Hack America, How Putin, Cyber Spies and WikiLeaks uh, Tried to Steal the 2016 Election, that actually came from my forthcoming book called Hacking ISIS, where we were doing a study of the secret war against ISIS and its cyber warfare organization. So... During the writing of Hacking ISIS, we found that two operations were um, two operations were actually uh, Advanced Persistent Threat 28 and Advanced Persistent Threat 29. Also famously known as Fancy Bear and Cozy Bear, the same Russian intelligence hacking groups that hacked into the DNC. And they actually did a false flag attack where they posted pictures of ISIS banners and everything and claimed that this super sophisticated hacking into TV France 5's uh, website was ISIS. And it turned out it was, in fact, Russian intelligence pretending to be them.
1: Yeah. Uh, I was going to ask, why would they they want to pretend to be ISIS?
2: Oh, well, there's any number of nefarious reasons that the Russians would uh, certainly want to carry out a hack and not have the uh, victim organizations recognize who exactly they they are going to, um, you know, who exactly is inside their servers. And of course, if you're going to do, you know, cover up your tracks, a good way, if if you really have to create mayhem inside of an up op- an opponent server or a victim server, is to is to deface the exterior websites. And while they're managing all the exterior defacement. They don't recognize that an actual sophisticated pack is going on on the inside. And that's why you could throw up an ISIS flag on it and everyone will believe that it's ISIS. But the tools uh, that were used in there were so sophisticated, you know, you'd need a billion rubles uh, to develop that.
1: And is that what helps give away the sort of fingerprints in the sense of the, the technology and the methods that require so much finance? It would require some sort of state sponsor.
2: Well, that's one component of it, Mm. but in in the sense that you have to understand that, you know, people ask me all the time, certainly this week, you know, does the United States or Britain, GCHQ, have this capability? And yes, we do. Um, We have great capability, but our cyber weapon systems, our cyber tools are considered like a finely crafted hand-built sniper bullet, right, where you call you personally forge the casing and you buy only the finest powder that's measured grain by grain uh, into the uh, into the bullet and then you you perfectly contract titanium bullets right you know years of analysis and you put it together and you only make five of them and then you shoot three of them to make sure that it works and then you go to your target with two bullets right just one to do the kill and one just in case And then that's it. Russia uses cyber warfare capability like you butter bread. It's a component of every aspect of their political, military and diplomatic structure. So they're constantly stealing, breaking in, hacking, cracking and getting whatever materials that they can. And then they just exploit it the moment they get it, exploit or they wait with for a period of time. For the optimum time that it's exploited.
1: Your book, as we were saying earlier, is a very timely book, and I'd love to. I'd love it's it. To, act, yeah. Let me
2: just make a point. Mm, it's not mm. actually timely. Okay. Um, it's it, the book was actually written between uh, the some of the components between April and August. I started. I changed from the ISIS book on July twenty fifth when I immediately recognized that the hack was an what we call a scripted intelligence operation, a very highly organized operation. The book went to print or went to the publisher on September 2nd and was in print on the 23rd of September. So it came out a month before the election.
1: It did. And, I had a copy in October. <laughs> yeah.
2: And no one paid attention to it no. uh, except NBC News, who was doing a whole series of reports about, you know, Russia is, is, is hacking the DNC. And everyone believed every word that came out of WikiLeaks while we were warning that WikiLeaks itself was this Russian laundromat uh, and was in collusion with, with the FSB. And so now, only because the director of national intelligence and the president came out on October 9th and verified that Russia had done the hacking and people got, it got a little attention, and only last week when the CIA report came out, which was delivered on the exact same day to the president as my book was went to print so on september 23rd now we're hearing the cia's conclusion is precisely the same as my conclusion written at precisely the same time and delivered at precisely the same time and people ask well how is that i go well great spies think alike right i mean i'm an intelligence officer they're intelligence professionals they saw the exact same things i saw maybe even deeper and further and they would have to write up an assessment for the president and it would have to be scrubbed and delivered just in the exact same timeline as the plot to hack America. Except mine went to the public and theirs is top secret and on the desk of the president.
1: Yeah, oh, that's brilliant. How would that make you feel when uh, when the CIA finally went public and said? Uh...
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's awful nice. This is not the first time that I've had to get the CIA, you know, has inadvertently validated everything that I've written. Um but it is nice to know that, you know, my, my, my intelligence mindset is still solid and uh, the fact that I can, you know, I see it exactly the way they see it. And that's very different. I, I, I write that at the beginning of the book that journalists don't, couldn't quite grasp this, the concept of a strategic cyber attack on the United States that went after a fundamental component of American society, which is the electoral process. <clears throat> and if if you can't understand that, and you go, "Ooh, WikiLeaks, bright shiny object," let me just, without any analysis, republish every word that WikiLeaks puts out. Well, you're not going to see the you know the forest from the trees, right? You're just seeing, "Oh, a new tree, a new tree." Intelligence uh, professionals don't see it like that. We're always looking for you know, what we call the Whiskey Five Hotel, who, what, when, where, why, how. And then we start looking for the nefarious, who, what, when, where, why, how. Because what's patently available in front of your face is often not the actual fundamental truth. So what you want to do is you want to say, ooh, there's been a Russian hacking. Now, why would the Russians do that? Who would benefit from this? When did they do it, right? Now, these are fundamental, are, you know, precepts of basic logic. But the key component that is often missing in the news media is, you know, what would the, the state of this, of Russia, the Russian Federation, get out of attacking the United States? And it will be seen by U.S. intelligence as an attack by altering and literally recreating Watergate. Which is what this was. This was Watergate 2.0. They broke into the Democratic National Committee exactly as the, you know, the, the the burglars broke into the Democratic National Committee in 1973 with the intent to exploit what internal workings of that organization was. Only this time they got away with it, and we know without a shadow of a doubt to the point that the United States is has high confidence, which is 95% or higher. We kill people with 75% confidence with drones, right? So why would Russia do this? And it's not going to be, oh, just to create chaos. They could do that just by putting out news reports in Russia today. There had to have been an end state to where the absolute risk of United States cyber retaliation outweighed the, you know, outweighed the, um, the, the results that they were going to come up with. So the result they came up with was, let's choose a candidate who won't have a problem with it. Mm. <laughs> so, <Yes. laughs> you know, let's choose a candidate who may have been carefully groomed, who didn't even know that he was an advocate and an asset for the Russian Federation, and that candidate was Donald Trump. And it still is, clearly, from yeah. his statements.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. He's, he's very much... Um, been playing this down over the last week, has he not? Which is suspicious. Yeah.
2: That, you know, I was on with Ambassador McFall, former U.S. ambassador to Russia, last night on a television program, and he brought it up first, where he said, Donald Trump's denials is starting to appear to sound like cover-up. It's not just pride, and we know there's no one with a bigger ego and, and a greater sense of depth of narcissism than Donald Trump. He said, but it, it's starting to appear that perhaps, uh, and I took it one step further, I said, it may be that he's complicit in this and became aware at some point that this was being done in his interest. And if that's the case, then he has actually moved on from, as I call it in the book, an unwitting asset to a winning asset to now possibly an agent. And... We don't know. And the only way you're going to know is if you carry out a counterintelligence investigation and it would have to be done quickly.
1: Yeah. And how would one go about doing that?
2: Well, you know, we have entire divisions of agencies who are sole function is to spy catch. Um, the FBI has two branches to the Bureau. There's the regular FBI, which does law enforcement work and gum shoeing. Then there's the FBI counterintelligence division. They are spy catchers and they are a key component of the U.S. intelligence community. And their job is to find Americans with, as we say, dirty strings, who may be actual paid intelligence officers of a foreign power or Americans, you know, who are working for a foreign power.
1: Would they not be afraid to rock the boat, though? Because, I mean, the, the, this is the president elect. Um, uh, who's accused and well uh, yeah y- y-
2: you would only have to assume that that these officers have a loyalty to the president-elect yeah. and not to the nation mm. um, you know there's the, the seat changes every four years or so uh, you, and we have a saying you work for the seat not mm. for the man mm. or the woman who is president of the United States the tr- the highest test of loyalty to this nation would be to be able to call out Based on evidence, based on investigation, if there are highly placed, not just, you know, not just spies, which is what they do. They catch spies. You know, the CIA has their division, the NSA has their division, and they work hand in hand with the law enforcement agency that is a principal responsibility, which is the FBI. Right. I mean, they they surveil and catch spies and ISIS agents with great and alarming regularity. Yeah. But what if. You had a spy or an American who is violating a law, and we don't know whether we're there yet, who is at the highest levels of office. And to allow that to occur would be the greatest act of disloyalty in the history of the United States by any sworn law enforcement officer, no matter how much they love that person.
1: Mm. Mm. And what, I suppose... um... If Trump is found guilty of breaking the law, what would what would likely happen, do you think? Or what should happen?
2: Well, the question is, I mean, you're 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 going way too far in advance. Yeah, Uh, because we don't know if any laws have been broken. We don't know just precisely what they're doing. The problem is, is that his, you know, at some point, someone is going to have to ask some very hard questions. And I asked three of them last night. What did he know about this hacking? When did he know about this hacking? Because on July 27th, he requested that Russia hack and release Hillary Clinton's emails and would be rewarded. Right? Yeah. You might recall that. I do. So when did he know this? When? Mm. What did he know? When did he know it? And is he complicit? Because he said enough things to make... Any counterintelligence officer go, whoa, whoa, Mm, mm. let's open a portfolio. I think we have someone that's dirty. And I don't mean him, just him. He has an entire cabinet that is full of of some of the most sympathetic people to Russia that has ever been assembled in the United States. 20 years ago, these people would have been under investigation for the statements that they made, supporting a, a Russian dictator to a certain extent, to the exclusion of the United States.
1: Yeah. When we talk of Russian intelligence, some people like to think we're just rehashing plots from old Cold War movies. But, you know, Russian intelligence is active now <laughs> as it was during the Cold War, arguably more you so.
2: You know, I got into a famous little spat with Glenn Greenwald. Yeah. Who is famous for being one of the, you know, one of the, uh, I call him unindicted co-conspirators in the defection of, uh, of, of Edward Snowden. And, you know, he wrote Uh, I made a tweet and I I said, FSB, which is Russian intelligence, right? The state, you know, state security uh, agency and slash KGB. And I said, you and your KGB friends. And he came back with this like raucous. Oh, you're crazy. You you know, you're so stupid. You think the KGB still exists. Mm. (laughs) Well, you know. (laughs) MI6 was never known as MI6
1: prior
2: no, no. to its inception. It was the <laughs> SIS, yeah, right? The Secret Intelligence Service. But the functions of MI6 never changed, no. right?
1: No, exactly. Can you give us a dummy's guide to contemporary Russian intelligence?
2: Sure. You know, it's like I said, everybody remembers the old KGB, right? From the James Bond films. Bad guys. Uh, you know, started uh, multiple different agencies after Lenin took power in 1917 and by the 1950s morphed into the, you know, um, know, Organization for State Committee for State Security, also known as the KGB. Uh, That organization fought the Cold War against the West. Their principal uh, intelligence objectives were, of course, turn Westerners into agents for Russia in order to acquire materials like atomic bomb plants, like the Rosenbergs in the 1950s, uh, and, of course, technolo- stealing technology and gain information about the West in order to destroy their capitalist uh, society. Now, that went out the window with the fall of the Soviet Union, right, in the late 1980s. And the period of glasnost, or, you know, a rapprochement between the West uh, and, and what was now the collapsing Soviet Union, uh, was brought forth by Gorbachev. And then Russia, when the Soviet Union collapsed and became the Russian Federation, turned into a slightly more liberal Western-leading society that wanted capitalism, that wanted to buy things under uh, Boris Yeltsin. Interestingly enough, Boris Yeltsin was having a lot of trouble with you know, investigations into corruption, Uh, They were selling off virtually every asset in the Soviet Union to uh, to private investors and a a whole class of the oligarchy rose. Right. People who were insanely rich billionaires uh, in Russia, which, you know, still didn't even have any decent cars. So one of the most loyal members that was brought on board by Yeltsin was a young ex-KGB major who had made his bones taming the mafia in St. Petersburg for the mayor of St. Petersburg, named Vladimir Putin. And Putin was best known for his loyalty, not just to whoever he was working for, but to the KGB. And he used officers of the KGB, ex-officers of the KGB, which at the fall of the Soviet Union was renamed the FSK, right? Same thing, Committee for State Security, right? Yes. And... The only difference is they cut they took off the border guards, the MVD, and broke that away from the, the KGB and made the FSK and the border guards were their own border guards. And covert intelligence was still by handled by that agency. Nineteen ninety seven to reward Yeltsin, uh, to reward Putin, Yeltsin Yeltsin made the young ex KGB major who was just known for running human intelligence officers into West Germany and getting computer technology. Now, keep that in mind. Yeah. <laughs> Putin, computer tech, stealing computer technology. He made him the director of the FSB, the new uh, organization for agency for state security. He was the first director, which surprised everyone because this is a very young guy. Uh, he was never a general, but he was rewarded for this, for his loyalty, for backing up Yeltsin. Interestingly enough, Putin is just a fascinating character. He is like a, he wanted to be a KGB officer from age 13. And there's a famous story where he goes to an open house that the KGB are having. And he on tele on, on video, goes up and says, I want to be a KGB officer. And of course, <laughs> they all laugh and they go. He says, what do I have to do? They say, go to law school, learn, you know, be a good citizen of the state, go to law school. And then come back to us, you know, yeah. laughing that the kid is doing that. Putin does exactly that. He goes on, goes to law school, applies and is brought into the KGB, is sent to the 101st Intelligence School and the Yuri Andropov School of Clandestine Intelligence, and then is run, sent to East Germany to run agents in West Germany. Those That time completely shaped Putin. He trusts no one. Except KGB and FSB officers, and you cannot be anyone in Russia without having an ex-KGB or FSB officer that he has approved on your staff. So if you want to be, as they say in Russia, under Putin's roof, right? Which means that you're 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 stamped and approved. You need to have you need to have t- close ties with the KGB and the F or ex-KGB and the ex-FSB. Interestingly enough, the FSB has run when the KGB changed its name at the fall of the Soviet Union. It just changed the letters in the name. It didn't change anything in terms of its scope of operations, its mission capability, except that they could now more, oply, more, more openly operate freely in the West.
1: Well, how, how active are Russian intelligence agencies in Western countries today?
2: <laughs> crazy, <laughs> crazy active. I mean, to the point where they make the old Soviet Union days look like, you know, Boy Scouts, yeah. because now they can travel freely in the West. They can live in the West. And uh, you might recall the, the 10 Russian spy ring that was caught in New York City, mm-hmm. which was almost laughable because, you know, running actual trained FSB agents, you know, which, by the way, the agency that is the actual clandestine service under the KGB is called the SVR. Yes. And that is, you know, the the Russian clandestine service, you know, the actual deep agents who collect intelligence and penetrate foreign countries. Well, you know, you could do better just by moving your officers there, letting them live there, and not even try to recruit agents, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You can actually vacuum cleaner the West – but these people were sent to turn people mid-level intelligence officers, mid-level military people, captains of industries. You might mm. remember Anna Chapman. Yes. who was married to this low-level Brit. Well, that was just to get her last name changed and to introduce her to western society, mm. right? Mm-hmm. And then she moved to New York City where she took on a myriad of roles and I want you to remember this, including real estate agent to the stars,
1: right? Oh, okay.
2: Real estate in the late 1990s, and the early 2000s in Russia, they were selling off everything and billions and billions of dollars of Russian money was coming into the New York City real estate market. And that also attracted the attention of a guy named Donald Trump. Yes. <laughs> and Donald Trump had already been to the Soviet Union. In the late 1980s, he visited Moscow. With the intent to try to, you know, milk the Russians to building a Trump Tower in Moscow and St. Petersburg. And when he realized he couldn't get any profit, the quality build would be low. He left that. He abandoned that until the mid 2000s when uh, he saw, as his son says, many Russians were introducing themselves into his portfolio with inordinate quantities of cash. Because they were stealing everything that was nailed down in the former Soviet Union and selling it off in the new now capitalist Russia
1: yeah so funny uh, a lot of people seem to be very dismissive or naive about sort of Russia's geopolitical sort of ambitions its foreign policy and things like that mm. so let let's touch upon that for a moment um what is it you in your book you mentions sort of Russia published these sort of policy documents every is it six years for a five year strategy right so what does so what what, would, what does Russia want between now and 2020, and why do they think Trump being in the White House can help them get that?
2: Good God, it's not Trump being in the White House could help them get that. They're getting it. It's just, you know, it's, it's just that way. Russia, since the fall of the Soviet Union, they, they sort of lost their way. They became very corrupt in the 1990s. Mm. And a lot of people back then still liked the order of the Soviet Union but they also liked the BMWs yeah. of the West, right? Yeah. And so they wanted to have sort of a hybrid society. China China was a solid communist-run state that never relinquished the power of the Communist Party. They just became communist capitalists. Russia shifted over to capitalism so quickly that, of course, a lot of corruption, a lot of death, a lot of mafia organizations were, were essentially taking control except in cities like St. Petersburg, where the ex-KGB were working with the local government to create control. And that's why Boris Yeltsin bought Vladimir Putin in. Not only was he loyal, he had the ability to create control. But Putin is a product of the Soviet Union. He is almost like, he's almost like Dolph Lundgren, right? In those movies where he's the the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Soviet spy, although Putin is a very short guy. But he has the mindset of, I am Russian killer, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And that might explain some of these photographs we've seen of Putin. Yes, well,
2: Putin (laughs) fundamentally knows Russia. He knows he doesn't go out and just hang out in five-star villas, right, when he wants people to see him. He's in a common country dacha cutting wood with his shirt off, right? He's appealing to the image of Russia that was fostered in the Soviet Union. But when he goes back to the the palace in Moscow, he rolls out in a stretch Mercedes (laughs) S-class limousine that is fully B-4 armored, followed by two counter-assault teams, right? Full-scale FSB cladded like Delta Force commandos in two stretch Mercedes Benz G wagons, fully armored so that they're constantly flanking him, right? Mm-hmm. It's incredible imagery done in high definition. And he goes through these ornate palaces. And so he has the ability to bring to the mind of the, of the, of the common Russian that he comes from the dirt, that he was a loyal Soviet, right? He was a loyal officer of state security and now he's the person who is leading this country through a period of now that's where they think prosperity russia is a disaster economically today especially since oil dropped from its highs in the 120s 130 dollars per barrel now down to 20 you know back to the pre-george w bush days 25 30 dollars a barrel they're not making money and that's all they have next to atomic bombs right and hot women that they show at the Miss Universe pageant, yeah, right? Yeah. Keep that in mind. Yeah. So Putin understands Russia and he understands its fundamental position. And there's this saying, you know, there's this saying that has been a common thread of, of Russia's national insecurity, even in the time of the czars, right? It's sort of a, what did they say? A slave king mentality, You rise up from being a slave, but you just never feel comfortable hanging out at Lise Palace, right, in Paris, despite the fact that you have all these magnificent palaces in Moscow and St. Petersburg, (laughs) you know. Yeah. yeah. Russia has never put that down. They always see themselves as the, um, you know, as the younger brother, you know, who never gets a break. And and just is not respected in the world, despite the fact that they have atomic weapons. When Putin came back into power, he came back in in a very interesting way. Suddenly in 1991, apartment buildings started blowing up in Moscow. And it was attributed to Islamic extremist Chechen uh, rebels, except that in one instance, one a, a group of, of residents of an apartment complex, were very suspicious of some men who were coming in and out at night. They grabbed them and found out they were FSB officers and had been planning over some incredible number, like 250 you know, pounds of hexogen, high-yield, military-grade, only used in like atomic bombs, explosive, high explosive. And, and Putin covered that up invaded Chechnya, a 100,000 people, and became the authoritarian figure of Russia, whose motto was almost make Russia great again.
1: Well, I was going All to right. ask you, is that what he, he was doing? And he sense, trying to make yes. Russia great and again. And he did it. And yeah. he did
2: it. I mean, the oil revenues went off the charts. Uh, but the problem with that is, you know, oil dropped. Russia today has the gross domestic product of Italy, Right. Right? And they have almost a per capita income. And this is a shocking statistic that I learned this year, a per capita income of India. They have half the population of the United States. And they have. And if you actually lay Russia out, if you've ever seen a map of the world, Russia is actually stretched very long. Mm. If you were to actually compress Russia into its actual size, it would be about the size of North Africa. Right. Yeah. It's not actually. You know, it's just, you know, the the mercator of the world. It just stretches Russia out all that way. They have a Putin understands the insecurity of Russia. And that's why his foreign policy became adventurism and aggression. And to show that Russia is going to be like the old Soviet Union. We can do things. And one of the first things that he did was he started, you know, this and, you know, this relationship with the United States, which didn't do very well. His goals were to push the United States and its theater missile defense programs back away from Russia, even though they were there to stop Iranian missile program. Right. And to do that, he would need to go back and retake some territory that he lost. Crimea, which was ethnically Russian, was always, you know, was given to the Ukraine at the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, He invaded it, took it back. He started, you know, a rebellion of ethnic Russians in eastern Ukraine with the intent to put back into power uh, Poroshenko, the pro-Moscow Ukrainian. Belarus, which is a pro-Russian dictatorship, has always been his ally. And then you have the Baltic states, which Russia invaded in you know after the beginning of World War II with the acquiescence of Germany, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. He fully feels that should be Russia. And they feel that Russia paid for those places in blood, in World War Two. So he's destabilized all of these places which have now, this may sound familiar, ethnic populations. Hmm. <laughs> like, I don't know, the Sudetenland, right? <laughs> the way Hitler went into the Czech Republic, Czech Republic, because there were ethnic Germans what needed rescuing, right? Yeah. So Putin views Estonia, Lithuania, Latvia, Georgia, the Ukraine, all of these places as Areas of absolute Russian spheres of influence and the belief that if the Americans can have the Monroe Doctrine, that Europeans can't meddle in Eastern, you know, in 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 the Latin America, then Russia should have a Putin doctrine. And everything east of Poland should be their playground. Now the people who live there don't believe that, but that's Russian policy. They also see the United States' as the, the United States' growing technological advances as being Uh, as being a threat to to Russia. You see that? I almost said Soviet Union. (laughs) As being a threat to Russia. And so they are operating on a more asymmetric scale because their wars in Iraq, Afghanistan, have shown America's total weakness Mm. in asymmetric warfare. So Russia developed a policy called hybrid war. And hybrid war is where there are stages of warfare where they can destabilize nations and put into place conditions that are favorable to Russia. They do it using all aspects of military, diplomatic and intelligence power. And hybrid warfare is actually political warfare, using the foreign ministry, cyber warfare, covert and clandestine military operations, uh, using the KGB, uh, i see, see that? Yeah. Using the FSB <laughs> and using Russian military intelligence like they, they do in the Ukraine. And using unlimited cyber warfare through a series of operations known as Compromat. And Compromat is compromising your enemy's politicians, right? And as well as disinformatia, right? Disinformation. And the funny thing is, you know, I'm a specialist in the Middle East. And people always ask me, well, how do you know all this? All of this was common knowledge to every intelligence officer before the fall of the Soviet Union. Russia used these exact same methodologies like they would drink water, okay, all the time. And it didn't matter where you were in the world, the Russians were always nearby. And when I worked missions like against Libya, against early missions against Egypt, uh, Syria, the Russians were always nearby, whether it was intelligence collectors, or if you go to Naples, Italy, you'd be, you know, you would be, you know, assaulted by, not assaulted, but You know proposition by gay Russian spies and we had numerous incidents of that and they always knew who to go after too right and always knew where to go so and and not to mention during the 70s and the 80s they were arming and funding some of the worst terrorist groups in Europe Mm. Red Army Faction right also Mm. known as the Bader Meinhof Gang Action Direct in France the combative communist cells in Belgium and these people were killing NATO Officers kidnapping them, right? Like Mm -hmm. the Red Brigade in Italy, Brigada Rossi. Um, And Russia was behind all of this. They have removed only the terrorist part of it. And they have completely funded every other aspect of that. And now they have appeared to have curried a rich billionaire who now has adopted their entire strategic platform, including the belief that NATO is obsolete and, and should be disbanded, and that Russia should be allowed to do whatever it wants in Eastern Europe. Sounds familiar?
1: Yeah, it does. So is this ultimately what Russia wants, isn't it?
2: Yes, it is. They want, and to tell you the truth, this election may have may have actually succeeded in making the world respect Putin as a far greater power than America. Mm. If it comes out that he actually, you know, that Donald Trump between twenty twelve and at some point, because no one in the media has put their finger on it, when did Trump adopt these positions? Mm. How did he do- adopt the positions that he espouses today, where he cannot say a negative word about Vladimir Putin? Mm. Was he co opted? Was he coerced? Yeah. When he was over there, was he, does he really believe these things? I mean, it would be like me in the 1960s spouting off about how great Ho Chi Minh was, right? Mm, mm. <laughs> this is just something that is just out of the ordinary. And as I said to true intelligence professionals, the first thing that you think is, hmm, that's not right. Where did you get this ideology? How did you get this ideology? You know, in, in intelligence, when you recruit an agent, you, uh, you have this, this technique called mice, right? Yep. Money, ideology, co-option, coercion and ego playing to ego and that's how you recruit an agent
1: yeah you know and uh yeah and so do you think trump well i don't know they say he's being sort of recruited knowingly but he's certainly he's got ego we can agree on that can't we and do you think they've played to that so
2: well i'll tell you if you just give me a moment i will read you a quote from the book cool (laughs) and you know people ask me all the time they're 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 saying you, you know Well, how did he get here? Mm. Well, back in the 80s, there was a, you know, back when I was, uh, you know, uh, a a baby collector. Uh, That's what we call ourselves. Um, We used to watch these classified videos by a guy by the name of Yuri Bezmenov. And Bezmenov was a defector from the Soviet Union who got out. He worked in the uh, propaganda and political warfare units. And Bezmenov uh, gave, like I said, this whole series of classified videos, which are now publicly available and on YouTube and
1: they are
2: how you've seen his videos. I've started watching
1: them. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah.
2: And he talks about the, the parameters for the recruitment of KGB officers. Right. And one of the things that I found fascinating was he would say we never, the KGB never recruited leftists. They always went after conservatives or nondescript political independents. And he said, the last thing you want is a, a left, a fellow traveler to flip on you because they're credible. And a, a conservative is not credible, but has an access. And so here's what Bezmenov said that the, the goal of, of their collection. And I said, um, uh, and this is sort of a prediction, right? The Russian spy agency had been ordered to make a bold move, hack the American elections, and engage in political warfare to elect Donald Trump president. Whether he knew it or not, Trump was the perfect candidate for a political asset. Former KGB officer Yuri Bezmenov said the KGB targeted, quote, egocentric people who lack moral principles, who are either too greedy or who suffer from exaggerated self-importance. These are the people the KGB wants, and finds easiest to recruit, unquote. And then I wrote, this activity could only have been directed from the highest level of the f- Russian Federation from Vladimir Putin himself. And as I call that chapter, the spymaster in chief, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. <laughs> this guy's not an idiot. He knows a good mark when he sees one.
1: So since your book has been released, a lot's obviously happened. What have you learned about the Russian hack since publishing the book?
2: Well, some of the things that, that were, were interesting and, and the most interesting facet of this is the absolute denial that Donald Trump and his supporters are having to the point where they're they're saying this was a liberal plot and rogue officers of the CIA, CIA assessments that go to the desk of the president are anything but rogue, right? Uh, there's, it requires dozens and dozens of hacks. Uh, you know, I should say chops, right? Signatures on that thing. And then it goes to the deputy directors and then to the director himself. Mm. Uh, and when they make an assessment, it's not a game. And you might recall one of the most famous success assessments that people thought was a game was called, uh, Al Qaeda determined to strike inside America, yeah. which was delivered to the desk of the president 30 days before nine 11. Yeah. You know, So this is not a game. But what's, what I find fascinating is the absolute abject refusal to believe it and that their total embrace of Russia to the point where it's just becoming suspicious. And at this point, it, the only thing that can happen at this point, because there's nothing I've learned since the time of the election uh, that I've written this book that has surprised me at all. It, it has all just been a day to day validation. But I I actually had someone say to me on a program yesterday, you're talking about possibly just a couple of people in the Kremlin. And I said, no, this is an operation that would require an an information warfare management. cell." Mm -hmm. and as I named it, the operation in in my book, Operation Lucky Seven, right? Yeah, Yeah. because you would you would need this, but it would require a few hundred people. You know, to watch the media minute by minute, multiple channels to determine the trend in the American political system, to read all of those emails in English and then determine precisely which ones would need to be, you know, turned over to WikiLeaks. Right. Oh, no, no, no. I mean, I've taken part in some operations. This one would have been a massive cyber warfare, political warfare, intelligence operation.
1: And Putin must have a lot of confidence thinking this would be worth it, surely.
2: Well, you know, at this point, I'm sure Putin is thinking exactly what I'm thinking. What's occurred no matter what happens at this point, Russia has conducted the single most the single most successful intelligence organization um, uh plot, successful mission since the Rosenbergs gave them the atomic bomb.
1: yeah and yeah. quite
2: possibly in the entire history of Russia.
1: This is definitely going to go into history books, probably up there with the Trojan horse, maybe.
2: It's quite possible, if, <laughs> if, if, especially if it turns out to be true yes. and it brings down a president, then, yeah. then it would have been, without a doubt, the, the greatest intelligence operation uh, since the Trojan horse. Wow. And that one was really a special operation.
1: It was. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, Malcolm, thank you so much for joining me on the Class Day. Quickly, how can um, listeners sort of find out more about you and also where can they find your book?
2: Sure. Well, you can find out more about me at my Twitter feed at Malcolm Nance. That's M-A-L-C-O-L-M-N-A-N-C-E. Uh, I run a think tank, the Terror Asymmetrics Project for Strategy, Tactics and Radical Ideologies at thetacticsofterror.org. And I am a media analyst, a terrorism analyst, and now national security analyst at NBC News and MSNBC. You can see me on there. And you can find my, all of my books on Amazon.com or wherever uh, finer bookshops, uh, keep them in stock.
1: If you've enjoyed the show, please spread the word by connecting with us on Twitter. By going to at Dry For more information about the podcast, please visit our website, www.drycleanercast.co.uk.
0: Thank you for listening to the Dry Cleaner Cast.